I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The RideList app. Download it today. Begin buying, selling, swapping your gear. RideList. Better than Craigslist. No tire kickers or used mattresses. Ride list. Download it on your iPhone today. We have a special evening with Wayne Lynch planned Friday, May 3rd. You, Wayne Lynch, and six other individuals will hang out, listen to music, talk story, and enjoy a three-course meal at Ranch 45 prepared by Chef Pam Schwartz. Three seats at the table have already been sold. There are four left and each lucky diner will receive one of the shaped blanks from round one of the Icons of Foam shape-off honoring Wayne Lynch, plus a VIP selection of goodies from Patagonia and The Boardroom Show. To get your tickets for the dinner with Wayne Lynch, visit boardroomshow.com. And the California Gold Surf Auction bidding begins April 21st. Lots begin closing Sunday, May 5th at noon Pacific Standard Time. You can inspect and view all of the lots during the boardroom show on Saturday and Sunday, May 4th and 5th. For off-site preview, registration, and bidding, download the app for your iPhone or iPad or visit the website on your laptop or home computer. Bid from anywhere in the world, CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. Like many of the subjects on this podcast, I had never met Clyde Beatty Jr. prior to our discussion. So my perception of Clyde was what I had gleaned and heard over the years. What I thought I knew, a red-hot surfer, the designer of the Rocketfish surfboard, and one of the first California surfboard builders to go overseas and help create production facilities in Asia. That last bit there put him in some hot water in the early 2000s, at least on the newly established distribution platform for democratic ideas known as the Internet. In this case, the HaterNet. Various quantities of vitriol were directed at Beatty on forums such as SurferMag.com and Swaylocks. But underneath all of that, out of the maelstrom from the vocal minority, I heard of great reverence for Clyde Beatty Jr. Reverence from people whom we all hold in the highest regard. People in the surfboard industry who are frankly above reproach. They praised Clyde as an absolute master board builder, telling me that Clyde had an intricate and intimate relationship with each process of the surfboard build. Materials, shaping, laminating, sanding, pin lines spray, foam tints, any color work, glossing, polishing, fin design, and fin placement. When you consider everything from soup to nuts, the whole enchilada, 
Clyde Beatty Jr. might be at the very top. The Boardroom Podcast with Clyde Beatty Jr. Let us begin. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Um, Clyde Beatty and Scott Bass here with you, the Boardroom Podcast. So you, Clyde, you were you were telling me a story about you and Brian, and I'm going to butcher his last name. Gologly. Gologly. Can yeah. you get a little closer to the mic, sure. please? Sure, sure, sure. So you were at the U.S. We were driving to the U.S. titles uh, in Cape Hatteras, uh, and he ran over a, uh, a bus in front of us, ran over a tin can, threw the tin can directly in front of our left front tire. We ran over that, and the next thing that happened, the blowout occurred, and uh, the oncoming traffic, it was Route 66, and it was like two lanes, only two lanes, and uh, the, the other traffic, oncoming traffic, slowed and stopped, and we're swerving all over the road. Then we hit the sand on the other side of the road, spun us around, rolled the car, uh, one and a half times. And uh, so, yeah, that was quite an so experience. One, one of the many adventures of Clyde Beatty. And, <laughs> yes. And you, and you were, you were, what year was that when you were with Brian? Geez, I think, I want to say that was uh, the titles of 75, I believe, the U.S. Right. titles. U.S. titles 75. Mm-hmm. And Brian is now, uh, he's in the process of doing an article for the Surfer's Journal on, on Clyde Beatty. Uh, on you. Yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to meet with him tomorrow. Right. And uh, he's going to do the preliminary write-up, and then uh, i got to go back again and then do the final wrap-up on the whole thing. Right, right. So it's all good. Yeah, that sounds like fun, right? Oh, yeah. It, You're it, looking back on your life's work in many ways, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually uh, taking pictures of boards that have been returned to me that are uh, – First, I think definitely one or some of the first boards I ever shaped. In and what years was that? What year were the first? When did you get into this shaping uh, career? Well, back then, um, there was no money in contests. You did the contest to get your face in the magazine, which helped sell surfboards. And I started as a team writer for uh, uh, Jay Stone, uh, Blue Cheer Surfboards. It was the Hobie blue cheer shop on uh, Wilshire Boulevard uh, in Santa Monica, West LA. And uh, so I started as a team writer for them, um, uh, local, the local guys. And, uh, and one thing led to another. Um, I started surfing and I wanted to get boards made. I, I wanted to ride short boards, uh, and I mean short boards. Back then, a short board was like a 7.6, right? And are we talking like 1973, or what are we talking oh, times? Rough, talking roughly six, early 70s? 69. Okay, late 69, okay, 70. 69. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I started surfing for him. And back then, to get into the surfboards, it was a very, very closed-door operation. People did not let people walk into the factory because you might – see what they're doing. So it kept it all in-house. It's a whole different philosophy now. 
whole, whole different world. That that's when was the factory behind Blue Cheer? Was the factory part of the shop? No, no, you couldn't do it right there where right. it was. It was located in Wilshire Boulevard, right? And the factory was just close. Right. It was like in Santa Monica Boulevard, yeah. in the section where factories industrial could be. area, right, yeah. right. And um, and so I got my foot in the door by surfing for him. And so then I was allowed to come into the factory. And we're talking back then, you know, it was still primarily longboards. Yeah. Right. And uh, and they're pumping out Hobies out of there? or uh, No, no they were shipping Hobies up to the store. Right, correct. But what the, were they making out of the factory of Blue, Blue, Cheers. Blue Cheer Surfboards? Blue and Cheers who surfboard. was the shaper? Mike Perry oh. was the primary. Oh, wow. And he was the editor of Surfer Magazine. Right. He was actually my mentor. Uh, basically, when it came to uh, surfboards. So and you sneak your way into the factory by way of being a really good surfer, which I know you were and are, mm-hmm. and and Mike Perry's there. and Yeah, well, he, he was a great guy. Mike Perry is just a, a, a wonderful human being. Um, and he let me in, and, and he was shaping boards for me. And my friend Steve Brom, we, we started together in uh, – uh, at his mother and father's house in his garage, we'd strip old boards, take the glass off, and then reshape them down and re-glass them. And that was where we sort of started shaping, right? And because at that point in time, what they considered a shortboard was a seven six eight zero. That was a shortboard, right? And I wasn't looking for that. I was into the Australian thing because they've got some connections we can talk about later or whatever, that, uh, that uh, they were riding Wayne Lynch and everybody was riding 6.0s, 6.2s, whatever. And I wanted a 6.0. And, uh, and to get the boards that I wanted to get made, I had to. I was forced into shaping because nobody wanted to make that. They said, oh, we know what you want. We know what you want. Um, no, 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 that's not what I want. I, I want so this. So Mike Perry would would say, yeah, I'll make you a six-footer, and, and, and you'd get your new board, and it'd be a 7.3 well, or something. He was, he was into the... The, the rounded the, pin, the, the, the wing pin. Or- well, back then, you know, like it was back when uh, Natural Progression was going, and Jay Riddle was riding, because everybody loved Cosmic Children. Right, so they're riding 7.4 single fins. 7.480 guns. It didn't for, fit the wave. Yeah, well, I remember, I remember Jay Riddle... He got this 8-4 gun, but because it was so small, you're not needing an 8-0 gun to surf one-foot Bay Street or whatever yeah. um, in Santa Monica, beach break. But he'd put the little fin on and do the 360s, spins. Oh, and everybody thought that was so cool, right, you know? Right. But I wasn't looking for that. Right. I was looking for, give me a short board with a big fin, right? Yeah. Uh, Greeno-inspired. And... Uh, I know George from uh, being in Santa Barbara area and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, but he started that whole movement by taking that to Australia, and that's what got those guys going from when he was kneeboarding uh, um, with the big fin, the flex fin, and that's what Nat Young attributed uh, his win in the contest to was that fin design yeah. from Greeno. Yeah, uh, they just had a movie on it, Spoons, up here at the Santa Barbara. Um, Did you go see this movie? Ah, couldn't get in. I, I got this. here too late. I was yeah. overseas. Right. Just came back, and it was just too much going on. I couldn't get to it. 
And I talked to Rennie. I talked to Rennie because yeah. he was pretty much a star, a star of the movie. Right? Let's back up just a little bit, sir, because you went into the blue chair factory as a team rider, and you got let behind the sort of the the screen of the Wizard of Oz, and you're back there. Right. That's exactly what it was. It was a closed-door policy because people were smart enough at that point in time to keep the masses out so they couldn't see the technique and the craftsmanship and everything that was involved. Because back then, it was craftsmanship. Uh, if you wanted color on surfboards back then, it was all done with the fiberglass, color in the resin with the fiberglass cloth. And actually, one of the boards that got returned to me was one of the boards I airbrushed back then using spray cans, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, because there was no airbrushing. Yeah. What's an airbrush gun? Nobody knew. Right. And uh, it's, uh, it's so I actually, one of the boards that got returned to me that I have in my collection is one of the first airbrushes, really, right. on surfboards. And I got a couple of those, as a matter of fact. And I've used the templates, wood cutout templates to make clouds and then use the spray can to spray them. Oh, it was barbaric. But back then, it was, it was unheard of. Yeah. No, you don't spray a board. You put all, all the color in with the glass. Right. And Bob Petty, who actually helped me learn glassing, he was the glasser for Dewey Weber. Phenomenal glasser. Absolutely. He could make any. I got introduced some new material that I located when my shop was in. Westminster MPV cloth. And it was, I advertised it in Surfer Magazine and stuff. And I actually sold to Channon. I sold to Yader Surfboards. I bought this stuff because it was phenomenally strong. Yeah. Uh, I was told that material was actually used in the original Pirates of the Caribbean boat uh, in Disneyland. Right. And I got access to this cloth and I, I was selling it. Right. And that was my first tip uh, of doing something like that. Because later on... What do you mean when you say doing something like that? Do you mean um, selling wholesale? To- the technology. I'm into technology. Okay. I've always been into right. a better mousetrap. Right. Show me something. Mm-hmm. And Bob Petty helped utilize the stuff, glassing the stuff, so I could then take that material to various shops. Right. And he was the glasser for Blue Cheer, so henceforth that's how I knew him. Right. Right. Getting into the factory. He's another one of your mentors. Mike Perry, a shaping mentor, and Bob Petty, a laminating mentor. Yes. Bob Petty was the best glasser I've ever seen. And uh, because he could knock out. And these, remember, the color was in the cloth. You had to tape off the blank. You had to shoot the board, um, glass the board with the color in the resin, being very meticulous about it. And then once it started to dry, you trimmed it with a razor blade. And then... You had to put color on the other side, and you had to do it the same way. There was no airbrushes, right? right? It was unheard of um, at that point in time. And uh, so he was the glasser. And that's what stimulated me, by the way, to get into playing with other things. Because actually, um, and it's documented in Surfer Magazine. I've I've got the clippings and the magazines and stuff, and surfing that I started playing with an epoxy right. light-stabilized resin. Yeah, right, and, and we're making a pretty big leap in time, but that's okay because this is important, right? It, it ties in. It ties in. It's, it's, You've uh, been fascinated by new ways to build the, the mousetrap, and this is part of that. I was into that. I, I, I never wanted to be known as a shaper. I wanted to be known as a board builder. 
okay, that's what I did. I knew every phase of it. I was sanding, polishing, which is highly underrated when it comes to, because it's, to do a good polish, it's, it's extremely, it's, in my opinion, glassing is easy. Uh, sanding is easy. Uh, fill coating, glossing. I learned how to gloss from Wayne Miata, who worked in the factory, and pinline for Wayne Miata. And, uh, and uh, it was all done with resin. There was no paint. It was all, the pin lines were done with resin. You had to add additives to it, DMA and accelerators to the resin just to get the pin line on there with resin. But I, got, I was fascinated by the whole thing. It stimulated me. It, 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 that's the way I wanted it to be. That's why I never really wanted to be known as a shaper, right? right? Shaping to me came out of necessity so I could get the boards that I wanted. And, uh, um, you know, this getting to the epoxy thing. What year did you get to the light epoxy? Like 81? I went to the U.S. Actually, I was working with Steve Brom back then, and the first sailboards were coming out. Right. And there were no blanks. Clark Foam didn't have any blanks for a sailboard. Right. So we had to use styrofoam, and Steve would have to start because he was into the, the sailboarding thing. And, uh, hey, this could be something new. This could be something good, right? Yeah. And uh, we basically, you started with a big block of foam. Yeah. And that's what Mike Perry used to tell me. He said when the shaping machines later came in and, you know, he says, the craft of shaping, oh, I can't remember how he put it. He says, the real shapers were back then because the blanks that Clark had were basically big blocks of foam with a little bit of rocker. That's when the true shapers were really shaping. Yeah. Right? They, uh, I can't remember out of how Mike put of, that. Out of a chunk of foam. Yeah, about yeah. a block with rocker in yeah, it. Yeah, a little bit. Right? Of, yeah. And you had to shape it. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so we were, you were telling me about, I was asking about the year for the light epoxy. Like, so you, you I, made, I, I went over to the U, um, I, I was, I went to, well, Brom had this EPS chunk, right? Right. Well, you knew you had them. to use epoxy resin. Uh, we made one. Um, he shaped it. I think I glassed it. And, uh, and, and how did and you glass I, I went this to, EPS with? Well, with the only kind of epoxy resin that was available at that point. <laughs> right. And it was West Systems epoxy, which was actually used for wood decking on boats just to seal the wood. Right. It wasn't meant to be laminating resin for fiberglass. Right. And it was, it was, it was <laughs> nasty stuff in terms of people could get skin rashes from it if you touched it and all. Oh, it was barbarically horrible. I went to the, uh, the, the titles, the European titles in England, because I was trying to get somebody to make a, a light-stabilized resin here of epoxy, and they didn't want to know about it. I, I kept hearing this hideous thing about... Uh, like the the resin piece of the pie, okay? And the big chunk was boats, right? And surfboards were just this little tiny itty-bitty slice of the pie. So no uh, no manufacturer, they said, oh, no, and this is epoxy. Everybody's using polyester resin. And... we don't want to know about it. You, you, you can't they kicked possibly. you to the curb. You're the redheaded stepchild as the surfboard manufacturer. Basically, yeah. yes. And uh, and what happened was I went to the European titles at Fistel Beach in Nuki, 
in England. And uh, I think Richard Cram was in that. I think he won it that year. I got all the way to fifth. But I met a gentleman over there who helped me find my way in England because I was the guinea pig for the Americans, the few that went over there. And I, I had to get to England and then get out to Land's End. And this gentleman helped me. Yeah. Um, and he later became my partner because he said, I think I can find you a company in England that uh, will make this stuff. And it ended up being SP Systems, Structural Polymer Systems. Did you have that on your board as uh, like yes, a laminate? I, I remember up. seeing SP on your boards. I, I have boards in my yeah. grunt and boards. I think I've seen Bradbury's with SP logos. I introduced John Bradbury, who is a good, very dear friend. Yeah. I was with him in the hospital when he was dying. Yeah. Um, but I worked with him. A matter of fact, uh, and this is fairly common knowledge, I introduced, there was no epoxy in Santa Barbara. Yeah. I mean, there was no epoxy anywhere. Well, I brought it back with me from England. The SP, a, the SP system. The SP. Uh-huh. The guy helped me find it. We had a business that we started over there. So I started bringing the resin in, but it was way too ahead of its time. Way too ahead of its time. How so? What do you mean? Clark Foam controlled the whole industry. Oh, right. So, TU Blanks controlled right. the whole industry. And I'm trying to introduce epoxy because I wrote it and went, I got a fifth place in that uh, that titles. Yeah. Writing an epoxy board. Yeah. And but you can put epoxy resin on poly blanks oh, from Clark, yes, you right? Can. But they didn't want anything to do you with it. You can't put polyester resin with all of its solvents on EPS foam, right. the expanded polystyrene foam, right. Right. because it'll melt it. Right. It'll be just gone. The blank's yeah. gone. Yeah. And uh, so it was a hard sell, very hard sell. It was way, and everybody, because at that point, oh, the entire gone. industry didn't want to be retrofitted with epoxy resins, basically. The right? windsurfers used to tell me. You guys in the surfboard industry have got to get your blinders off. You got to quit having tunnel vision. These are lighter, so they don't look like a polyester board. We don't care. We want them stronger. We want them lighter. Oh, that got me in yeah. right there. Yeah. That's what got me stimulated. I, like I said, I, I rode a board. I took one over to the to the championships. Uh, ended up getting a fifth place. Yeah. And leaving it with my soon-to-be partner over there. And we started trying to make and promote the epoxy thing. But we were way too ahead of our time. Way. The Clark Foam efficiently buried me. Yeah. Right? How so? How did that happen? Well, let me just finish. Yes. Let me just finish. Yes. When I, uh, when I uh, brought the resin back, I had brought it up to Santa Barbara. And, uh, and uh, I turned my friend John Bradbury onto it. And John Bradbury, because some people wanted it, uh, progressive thinkers were going, oh, this is interesting stuff. And John shaped, under the Town & Country logo over here, Martin Potter's first epoxy boards. And he's the 86 world champion. Uh, And John shaped them, and I got to glass them. And I say that like that because... I had to do the Martin Potter's signature airbrushes, which were a pain to do. Yeah. And, uh, and I even signed them, Shape J. Bradbury, Art C. Beatty, right? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that was the start. Yeah. That, was the, 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 that was a clicker. Now people started slightly getting interested in it. Yeah. And today, look, look what's going on. Right. And uh, 
But it got but buried. Was, but it got buried. It by got Clark buried by Clark because everybody basically. And I've saved the newsletter from the old newsletter that you put out. Epoxy is dangerous. Don't use it. But he would tell his customers on the side, "I don't want you switching over, or I'll cut you off on on the Clark blanks." So that's really how you got buried. Is that the threat how that we Grubby got was not going to sell you blanks if you used epoxy because he was concerned that the next step is they're going to be wanting EPS foam. Exactly, right. and that's what's going on right now. Look at uh, how many people. Look at firewires. Look at look at who I actually made some of those firewires. Uh, quite a few of them, and uh, but they were they were into the epoxy. Oh, 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 epoxy! All their boards were epoxy, and it was gratifying to me. I, I mean, I've, yes, I got a little left out there because of how the whole thing transpired, but it's documented in the magazine. Yeah. I don't care. It was like yeah. with my rocket fish design. I never patented the name. Yeah. I didn't care about that. Yeah. People started using Rocketfish. It became a model I remember. at that point. Yes. But I have um, you, some but, of my logos, the original Rocketfish. Well, tell me about the Rocketfish then, because um, Braum was making fishes, right, for Dino, and you must have been well, intrigued by those a little bit. Well, actually. And you tweaked on that. Uh, yeah, here's another good story for yeah. you. Jim Pilkington, my team captain, came from San Diego. San Diego was where Steve Liss was playing with the split tail twin fin, which goes way back to Simmons in Woodboards. Right. He made a split tail uh, twin fin yeah. way back in Wood. So yeah. it came from San Diego. Steve Liss, who I bumped into on my trip over to Kauai, I actually bumped into him, but, and we had a good story to tell. Uh, but he, was, they were kneeboards, yeah. right? And my friend brought, got one because he was really down in San Diego area at that time, Jim Pilkington. He brought one of the Hennessy fish that were exclusive to the Sunset Cliffs, right. right? And he brought one up. And we're playing with it. David Nueva then tried his board one day out at the pier. And the rest is history. Right. The U.S., okay. the national, or no, the um, world titles. Uh -huh. 72 world titles, and the board gets flipped over and stolen and burned. And, or they got pumped. burned on the bridge because that was in San Diego. I think it was at Oceanside. Ocean Beach. Ocean Beach. Yeah. And people grabbed his board that were the locals. That was their design. Right. I mean, you got, you got localism big time down there. Yeah. Uh, everywhere at that point. Right. Everywhere. Yeah, 72. This beach right here this is my favorite beach. This was one of the worst local yeah. localized areas anywhere. Yeah. And uh, nasty. But um, that's my home beach. So Pilking, Pilkington Jim brings this board back up here from San Diego. This this Hennessy, basically like the a Hennessy board. fish. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was surfing it and stuff. And uh, it was fun. It was different. Ha, ah, here's, here's that thing again. Different design, different materials. I'm into this stuff, right? right? So anyway, and then Steve, who, you know, we go way back. He's, he's, we, we used to go on surfing trips to Salt Creek and Cottons. We used to surf all the time together. He introduced me to my real first girlfriend okay right, right. how good does that get yeah steve <laughs> you know? brown yeah steve brown and uh, and uh he started shaping the fish and dino and nueva and that was his baby right? right but that's why they burned that board on the pier the san diego locals took it and hang it off the pier and burned it right you know because hey this is our design what are you doing right. with this yeah 
And it was hilarious, you know. But that's how it was then. Yeah. You know, just like the localism thing. Yeah. And uh, so this this evolved into the Rocketfish how? Ah, it, I went back to the U.S. titles. Where were these? Do you remember? Cape Hatteras. Okay, right. And that's the one I went back with Brian Glover. Oh, the same one. Okay, yeah, yeah, Cape Hatteras. And when I got there, we had rolled the car. My favorite, my favorite board at that point was a 6.9. It could handle smaller waves. It could handle, you know, up to good-sized waves. Yeah. Round pin, single fin glass on. When we rolled the car, they were on top of the car. Right. And my favorite board... <laughs> My fin was busted off when we rolled it. And uh, the surf racks actually protected us, but the board had the single fin aimed up, and when we rolled the car, it just snapped that sucker right off. And I had brought a fish that we had made to hopefully sell it back there to somebody, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, just to get it stimulated, right? right? To seed, seed, germinate the area. With the germinate fish. the right. area. And... I ended up writing that board in that titles. It didn't have a leash loop holder because there one that one were none at that point in time. Plugs. Yeah. We used to use glass on rope, resin rope, like what you glassed your fins on with, to make a loop for the first leashes, yeah. right? But I didn't have one on the board, and that cost me big time in that contest yeah. because I lost my board during the finals and went all the way in. I had to swim in and paddle back out. <laughs> cost me. But that's when I started riding a fish, and I loved it. But back there, Mike Grassley, um, up in that area, there were people riding gunfish in Santa Cruz um, that were a narrower version. They didn't have the big, wide trash can nose. Um, You rode them a little longer. And I saw him lighting the contest up. He wasn't in the contest. He was the O'Neill rep uh, at that point in time. And he was back there, and he was riding this board that was a gunfish. I think it was shaped by Joey Thomas, a very dear friend of mine who yeah. actually helped me win a Santa Cruz contest. He called me into the right spot. Oh, cool. Uh, Joey's from the East Coast originally, I believe. Yeah. Well, he was Santa Cruz at that point. Right. And um, so Grassley brought this board back, and he was just lighting it up. If he would have been in the contest, he would have won the contest, period. Right. And that got me stimulated again. So I came back and said, I don't like this wide trash can nose. I don't like the feel of it. You can pump it. You can pump it. Get a bunch of speed. But it didn't want to really turn that well. Yeah. And I didn't like that. So I came back, and Brian wrote the article, the, the Rocketfish article. It was dated 74-75. Yeah. Where I coined the term Rocketfish. Right. It was a narrow nose. Right. Uh, I've got some in the garage here mm-hmm. I can show you. Um, um, narrow nose. And um, and I refined the tail, and over time I put a bevel on the rails to elevate, mm-hmm. so the midpoint of the board was smaller. So you had when you were planing down the wave, you had less wetted surface. But that was way later. Right. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. But um, the board evolved over years of you were tinkering with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the original one, you just you narrowed up the nose and it looks like the 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 tail, the the tail. tail. So the curve and the outline in the plan shape was just. I have a formula Exotic. for it. I've, I've got I've got everything oh, recorded, it? fin placements, everything over yeah. time. My fish fin template, which I uh, evolved, actually started showing up very similar versions of it. I mean, you can't really patent a fin, no. um, but it showed up on some very big companies' yeah. boards, right? Sure. And uh, it was one of those things. Stimulate. Um, that's what stimulates. Right. That's what gets me going. Right. New design, new materials, always searching for something better. A quick break in the podcast to tell you about the RideList app. RideList is a sponsor of the show, and we appreciate their help. You're going to want to download the RideList app on your iPhone. Once you do that, you can buy, sell, swap any of your gear, all of your gear, on the Ride List app, it's a peer-to-peer gear trading, swapping, buying marketplace. Ride List app. I'm on the app right now, and I have there is a six-six Pizel Ghost in XTR, which I believe just won some big award. The Pizel Ghost, I think. Um, there's a CI Rocket Nine. There's wetsuits there's a firewire quadfish for only sixty dollars there's a lost v3 rocket for 300 bunch of killer boards and gear on here there's mountain bikes cycling cameras wetsuits skateboards snowboard gear mountain gear check it out ride list download the app today tell me a little bit about your father this this concept of a of a circus like i don't know anything about this is all new to me this Oh, I've known some stuff about Clyde Beatty Jr., but I didn't know that your father was a circus guy. Or, oh, if you if you go to Google, Google, please him, help. You can you can see it. Right. What? what? He he was. I, I'm a circus boy. Right. I, I was literally circus boy, and uh, I grew up on a circus. Your father owned a circus. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was Clyde Beatty Circus. He worked with Ringling Brothers. He worked with Barnum and Bailey. But he was like the guy. 
Right. I mean, he's on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, wow. Right? And back then, you had deal. to be somebody really big. And I, I grew up convoluted. I learned to ride an elephant before I learned to ride a horse, okay? <laughs> and, and all these movies. stars. What's the difference? <laughs> to me, I, I learned to ride an elephant before I learned to ride a horse. Right. I, what's unusual about that? It wasn't for me. <laughs> right. I just, it was just the way it was because that's where my love of animals came from uh, was that, yeah. that whole period in time. And what was really convoluted um, uh, was my dad was loved. I mean, we have pictures with Princess Grace and uh, Prince of the Monaco, right? Uh right. And all these movie stars. Right. And Mickey Spillane, the author, Mike Hammer and stuff. Right. I only knew him as Uncle Mickey. Right. You know, he was good friends with my dad. They were fishing buddies. And uh, all of these movie stars at the time, Pat O'Brien... My dad made movies. He, right. was, he used to tell me, I'm not a movie star, but they want me to make serials, movies. Right. Uh, That's why you lived in Hollywood. He made movies at one point in time. Yeah. But um, mainly we stayed in Florida because that's where the animals were winter quartered. And so they had area to roam, and it was hot, warm weather. Right. Um, but um, he, he made movies with Abbott and Costello. Right. He made movies with all these people. He, he his first movie was 1930, uh, The Big Cage, which was also a book that he co-authored with uh, Edward Anthony. And in the movie is Mickey Rooney, and he's a little tiny kid, you yeah, know. Yeah. And uh, but I grew up with all these people, and they were gaga over my dad. Everybody was gaga over the 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 movie stars, right? Right. All the movie stars were gaga over my dad. Right. They all wanted to be close to him. They wanted to, you Why know, touch Why do you think him. that was? Because. Creativity? Because he was the master showman. Right. He was, he had the world record uh, for most lions and tigers in a cage at one time, 40. And he, everybody thought he was, he couldn't even get insured by Lloyd's of London because everybody thought his business was too dangerous. In a nice article by Edward Anthony, he said to him, he was truly a genuine guy even though he was the guy, the master showman. All the movie stars thought he was the top of the food chain. Right. And so that's how I convoluted uh, my childhood was. Yeah. All of these people that everybody else out there were goo-goo over were, you know, they were goo-goo over my dad. Yeah. And so, and I was just a kid, so I didn't, you know, I didn't right. really pay any attention. Hey, this is just the way it is, <laughs> you know. So back to the epoxy, um, mm -hmm. obviously the, some of the problems were, um, and I'm talking like, you know, right when you brought it over and mm -hmm. when, I mean, did you start, did you never again work with polyester resin? Oh, not at all. Okay, I, never, you, I never, ever, matter of fact. You weren't I, like just all gung-ho on epoxy from it, like 81 on or whatever. Oh, I was gung-ho on it because yeah. I figured it was the best stuff. But you were sort of forced by the industry to kind of do, uh, dip yeah, your fingers was, in both worlds. It was still... And yeah. I had to be voted back in to Clark Foam. I was told this by the people that worked there at the point, some wonderful people. Yeah. Um, that they, you were persona non grata. Yeah. It was like I had to be voted back in to allow me to buy Clark oh. Banks, right. okay, because I was a threat. But he'd efficiently buried me by that point in time, right. buried the, the whole movement, right? right? 
And I didn't realize what I was running into because right. they had a virtual monopoly. Yeah, and you were um, just like, "Hey, I'm 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 into new stuff. I'm you're constantly trying to change." And and I can't fault regress. Grubby. Hey, I cannot fault Grubby for that. That was his business decision. He ran the business with an iron hand. This oh, yeah. is clearly documented. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he had it. You know, he controlled the whole Dana thing. Point Mafia. He controlled every. Yeah, he controlled. The whole surfboard industry. Yeah. Not anybody else. He yeah. controlled the whole industry. And I have no hard feelings against him. It yeah. was a business deal. Yeah. You know, it was just like. Uh, but you did work with Epoxy. And, and some of the, what were some of the problems I, that you ran into besides even just the skin rashes and it, stuff? But well, that, I no, mean, no, no, no. Because I started working with my friend Greg Lohr. Right. Because he saw me my group back at the trade show in Orlando, Florida, selling resin and blanks. And he thought that was a great idea. Right. And he's a friend of mine. We yeah. work together now. Yeah. We surfed in those U.S. titles together. Uh, yeah. He beat me by a place. A and great, he never lets me Lord, forget it. Great surfer. <laughs> and Clyde, of course, you're a great surfer too. So that must have been fun. Yeah. It was. It was. But you guys. I, are- I made Andy Irons first epoxy boards. My shop made Andy Irons first epoxy board. Yeah. I got Tim Curran's boards in the garage. And Martin right Potter's. Now. Well, Martin met, Potter, we made mentioned. him. We made boards for so many people. Yeah. That was with Bradbury, but then they spread. I went to Hawaii to show all of the boys in Hawaii uh, the epoxy system. And uh, back then, it was, you know, pretty much black shorts controlled. Oh, yeah. It was hilarious. But I knew Dane Kaloa, and we surfed on the O'Neill's uh, surf team together. Yeah, yeah. We surfed in Caton contest because that was really the only pro contest going back then. Yeah, the yeah the Caton in Huntington. Yes, in indeed. the winter Nancy, I was one of her poster children on the, in her advertisement. Right, and she was a wonderful lady. She was salt of the earth. Greg really. Lore, in many ways, you guys are sort of cut from the same cloth. Oh, Greg and I go way back. We, we we're, we're working tinkers, together. We're right? both. We're both. I'm using his resin right now. And yeah. I've given him feedback. Yeah. You know. When we go in, because I was the first guy, yeah. I was period. I mean, it's documented in the magazine. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, but but early epoxy, what kind of? I glassed Rusty's first epoxy. What kind of what kind of problems were you running into? I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, look, you hear things about discolorization. Um, you hear that oh, it's yellowing. The first, oh, the, the they, first they're hard. To, it's hard to work with. You know, like all these things that the industry was telling you. Yeah, How did you? It was hard to work with because. It was different. Bob Petty, when I, with the MPV cloth, everybody said, oh, it's too hard to work with. Hey, if you want to make something work, you figure it out. The colorization problem, because all of a sudden, now that little piece of resin pie is starting to get a little bigger. Now people are willing to listen. And Greg um, took the ball and ran with it. He came in as Clark was starting its demise, which was so funny. Because they said in that newsletter, don't use epoxy. It's deadly. It will kill you. Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, How many people filed class action lawsuits against Clark Foam? How many people died from the toxicity of the PU foam ingredient, MDA? There's a couple of them. MDI? MDI. Excuse me. And... uh, it can kill people. It yeah. did kill people. Yeah. And wait a minute. The epoxy, this is what I used to tell people. Excuse me, your temporary fillings in your mouth are epoxy resin. If you do that with polyester resin, you will die. 
Now, how inert is that, mm. right? Mm. You can throw the epoxy, certain kinds of epoxy, into any landfill because it is like a rock. Right. It is organic. It is not, it is not, other than the skin rashes that occurred, but now it's been formulated, so that's, that's a moot point. That's yeah. it. Everything progresses. And as the technology gets better and better and better, now there's whitener brighteners in the epoxy resin. Yeah. And it's same with the PE resin. Yeah. It's same, same, same. But it's a better mousetrap. Now I'm into playing with all these exotic cloths because the company I work with overseas uh, in America, uh, Dragonfly Sports, well, we get all the new cloths that come in. When Anegra first hit, they were right there coming to our doorstep going, hey, look at this stuff. This is, oh boy, that stuff. That, that's the new carbon. That's the new, that's, that's. So when you say overseas, you mean in Asia, you're in, now you're, at some point in your career, you made this leap to Asia. Uh, wait, wait a minute. I consider myself a student of the world. I had the shop in England when we were doing, with, with John Bamford doing the, the epoxy boards over there. Uh, I've been all over the place. Um, uh, I don't consider myself locked in. I, yes, I'm from America. I love America. It's always my home. I, but you utilize all the tools that are available to you. And I've, by working overseas, I see how I've got good friends in Australia, um, England, um, uh, Indonesia, you name it. Yeah, I'm not locked into. I consider myself a student of the world, and that comes from that circus background of always traveling with the circus and interacting with all these different acts in the circus. These guys are from Germany. These guys are from Italy. These guys, I grew up with that. I didn't even know what racism was. Yeah. I mean, because it was like we're all one big family in the circus. Sure. Well, surfing is the same way. My life is a circus. Surfing is the same way. It, once you're a surfer, I'm sorry, that's it. You yeah. you will die a surfer. Yeah. Okay. Um, the people who are into it, because I lived, breathed. The only way you could make money was to make surfboards and sell them. There was no money in contests. Eh? Yeah. Oh, you were lucky if somebody tossed you a free wetsuit if you won. Yeah. Um, and now to see how it's matured and grown and blossomed, it's a real. I mean, these guys are making some severe bucks right now. I would suggest that you actually are um, sort of an anomaly in that I think that surfers are actually quite um, conservative, that they're not progressive thinkers, that they're locked into their ways. They they put on this sort of this veil of, you know, worldliness and um, hey. progressiveness, but they're actually very, very conservative. And some of this manifests itself when you went to Asia to develop new surfboards and you caught a little bit of flack, maybe a lot of flack. Which oh, I had a big bullseye on my back. But you know what? I'm glad you brought this up. Because when I was here and my shops were in America, not England, not anywhere else, in America, where I started, I would train people up in my shops. And then they would walk down the street, open up a shop, and undercut me. Yeah. No, I have, American, <laughs> I, I have no mercy yeah. whatsoever for this. Yeah. Because you know what? 
They're now the ones screaming about anybody making boards elsewhere. I don't care if it's Asia. I don't care if where it is, Australia, whatever. Hey, they're undercutting me. Oh, I do not bleed for you. Right. I'm sorry. This was a, a business because when I went over there, I had my own shop here. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it took those blinders off. It took those uh, tunnel vision away because I went over there totally opposed to not making any boards other than here. Right. Oh, you know, when I get over there and see the realities of the whole thing, it's a worldwide economy now. Yeah. It's, there's no turning back. There's right. no changing it. Yes. If you think you're going to stay in one place, you're going to get left behind. So it, just like in Australia, hey, okay, they're the ones that started overseas production, by the way. Yeah. They were the first ones to want to get a cheaper product, make it available. Right. So now, how did they do it in Australia? What do they do? Made and designed in Australia and America, made wherever it is, overseas. We offer this model at this price. If you want to pay for the domestic board, we offer it at this price. But you have your choice. Keep your custom work in your own local area. Hey, if people want homegrown, I don't care what country you're in, yeah. Australia, wherever, yeah. hey, Make those in Australia and charge what you need to charge. Yeah. And here you offer it is a viable option. They're doing this. Sure. It's no big deal. Yeah. Here it's a big deal. But you know what? Wake up and smell the roses right. because there is no turning back. Right. You cannot change this. And I can't change it. You can't change it. Nobody can change it. It's the way it is. And it, and it was even a much bigger deal when you first went overseas. You specifically, like you ha you mentioned a bullseye. Did, did that hurt? Was that like, were you, hey, did I that bother you? Like, I mean, I that must have been a bummer to see your name sort of getting dragged through the mud a hey, little bit. And, but I saw people responding. I don't do social media. I right. don't need to. Right. I do boards for other people, their label, their shaping files, right, right, right. OEM. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got no problem. I work with everybody. I'm yeah. not working against yeah. anybody. I'm yeah. working with everybody. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, that's how I met Tommy Carroll and Richie Lovett, and yeah. you know they're they're friends. Right. You know now. Cool. cool. That's but, good. But but to get back to that, I'm, yeah. I was losing the point oh, I'm here. Sorry. Um, I interrupted you. It. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a bummer. But I don't do the social media because once you respond to one person, now you got a hundred people that now you have to respond to them, and it just keeps growing and growing. Hey, I'm letting people think what they want because I've heard insane things, you know, on social media. Oh, uh, he's gone overseas. He's I, I'm in a mental institution overseas. <laughs> How can I be talking with you if that's the case? Okay. And I've heard all sorts of stuff, you know, yeah. silly stuff like, oh, he's got 500 wives and 10,000 children. <laughs> Give me a freaking break. Get a life, people. Yeah. You know, I mean, is this all the time you stand in front and I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. I'm in the factories. I'm, 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 I'm firing in all cylinders. I don't have time to deal with people's right. wrong Hurtful, yeah, but I, I just shielded myself to it and said, they don't know. Yeah. Just like everybody, oh, um, for instance, geez, we were in the Vietnam War, and now they're more capitalistic. We wanted them to change their line of thinking to be like us. 
They're more capitalistic than we are right now. Yeah. Same with China. Same with so many different places. And because of my love of people, I'm, I didn't buy into any of that bullshit. Yeah. Excuse my language. Oh, no, that's okay. But I didn't buy into it yeah. because you know what? I like the Australians. I don't dislike them. Yeah. I like everybody because of my circus background. And the Chinese, the big bag Chinese, hey, rude awakening for you. They're wonderful. They're right. wonderful people. You know, governments are governments. Like, right. look at look at our government right yeah. now. Come on, <laughs> give me a break. And uh, uh, but it's the people, and I I, I love everybody. If somebody yeah. loves me, I love them right back. Amen. That's that's the way it should that's be. Sweet. Yeah. And I, you know, people. I, you know. Well, you, I always wondered. I always wondered because you weren't engaged in in the internet chatter that was a pretty vocal minority. Um, but I imagined that you must have heard some, some well, of I the did, back. But I also heard people who said, hey, Clyde got served a bunch of lemons over here, so he learned to make lemonade. Exactly. Right? And I did it out of, I knew there was not, no fighting it. Yeah. I, but I now deal with everybody all around the world. I'm not against anybody. I'm not fighting trying to make sure my brand is the number one brand. No, I'm making their boards for them, and I'm friends with them. I'd much rather. You, you, everybody benefits when people work together. Yeah. When they're trying to go this direction, that direction, oh, it's my boards, and, and oh, my boards are better. And just, Hey, every board's good when it comes right down to it. Yeah. You know, if people are into what they're doing design-wise, yeah. hey, it's going to work. Yeah, and you know the day of having to have a, a CI, for instance, to win a world title. Oh, Europe, Brazil, local shapers, local in. Oh, lights are going off, people. Lights are going on. Yeah. You know, do you, do you mean that CIs are made all over the place? Is that what you're getting at? What do you? Well, mean? they always have. Been. Yeah, no, I'm just. You know, I just wanted I'm, to clarify what you're saying. What I'm saying is, it's it's everybody used to think you if you're going to win. Tommy Curran, mm -hmm. Kelly Slater, you had to ride a CI. Mm -hmm. Well, Medina's now two-time world champion, and, you know, yeah. and they're riding, a lot of them are local shapers, yeah. right? Which shows that the whole industry is worldwide. Right. It's no longer you have to ride that board to be a world champion. You can ride this one or that one or that one. It's, it's 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 a growing, blossoming thing. There are some California board builders that are suggesting a tariff be put on imported boards. What are your thoughts on that? I remember somebody, and I'm not going to mention names here, who fought it, took it all the way to um, the government in D.C. to fight incoming product. And well, Matt Violas did that. Uh, yeah, but... They're overseas making boards. So yeah. what do you say to that? Um, oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I fought it for a long time, and it's a, it's a viable option. Yeah. You mean a tariff, a tariff's a viable thing, perhaps? Well, I mean, doing, you're not. They're doing that with, with products made, which is a silly thing, because Americans are the buyers of, the, those, of those products. Yeah, in other words, we, we, we suck up that tariff in our cost. Well, the, the thing is, it's, it's like a... It's just an option. It's not the only thing. It'd be yeah. great if every country only made their own boards, but then that creates separatism 
you know, in, you know, viva la difference, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it it opens your mind, because I I was totally opposed to, and I I had my shop here. Yeah. I was totally opposed, because otherwise it was going to kill me. Right. Nah, you learn to work with the variables you are presented with. Right. It's a simple, simple concept. Took me a while to, to get it. Right. At first I thought, oh, I can't win this battle. I can't fight this. Yeah. And but then you learn why do I want to fight it? It's better to work with people than to butt heads with people. Um I'm a firm believer that I will go to the grave with that one. It's better to be friends than enemies. You know? Yeah. I mean it's 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 just different. Yeah. Promote the difference. Hey, and overseas, you have to ship it. You have to wait for it and everything else. Do your custom work where you're at. I don't care if you're in America. I don't care if you're in Australia. I don't care where you're at. Do the custom work. But if you're trying to reach a volume mm-hmm. of people, yeah. if you're looking that route, yeah. um, then then open your options to availability. Um, there's no... You know, I mean, big, red, ugly communist machine. God, the Chinese are more communist than we are. I mean, a capitalist than we yeah, are. Yeah. Same with Vietnamese. Same with yeah. everybody. It's a worldwide economy now. Right. It's, that's it's it. Just period. It yeah. That's the way it's One it big marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Nobody can fight it. Yeah. Learn how to utilize it. Yeah. Learn how to make it work for you. Yeah. Because, um, unfortunately... The surfers are still the starving artist, especially now, because so many people want to be shapers. Therein lies a big problem. And when mommy and daddy could buy uh, their son a shaping machine, all of a sudden, they are now shapers. And some people in Australia and other places have told me, God, this guy, if you gave him a planer, he couldn't even shape. It's Everything's off the machine. Once again, going back to Mike Perry, the days of the real shaper is when you had to cut down those big blocks of foam because you knew had to, and there were no shaping machines. If you had to put that into a time period, like that Mike Perry's talking about, where there were quote unquote real shapers, when did that end? Do you think um, on the timeline? Can you could you put a year down? Like was it eighty eight or was it seventy eight or was it? 71, like, when did the real shaper, if you were to ask Mike Perry, maybe, what would you think he would say? Or what do you think I, you I did say? have to ask Mike on that one. Um, do you feel that way? Do you feel like there's a place on the timeline you can pinpoint and go, there's really the, the, the era of the real shaper is over? When the shaping machines kicked in, period. That's, so that's 91-ish, 92-ish? Clark Foam actually made blanks, the thin series blanks for the hand shaper, and they had their thicker blanks for the machine shapes. They said they had to do that yeah. to accommodate that mentality because people were frightened to death. I know certain shapers, certain ghost shapers for me, who were scared to death of the advent of the shaping machine. Yeah. And they had every right to be because anybody could sit there at a computer board and design a board. They didn't even have to pick up a planer. Yeah cut it, and just lightly finish, sand it down, and then make modifications to the file. That was the date right there. Right. And uh, once again, there's no turning back. Right. Because people way back when, Sean Thompson, who had the magical board made when he won the world title, 
the killer board that he won at ba- uh, Backside Pipeline on with the full rocker. He tried to get that board duplicated and duplicated and du- it never was the same right. board. Right. And I see Murphy. Sean from time to time, yeah. talk to him and stuff. And, uh, had a pink <coughs> pink deck, I think. Spider yeah, Murphy. Yeah, blue South. rail. Blue, yeah, oh, yeah, Spider well, there's Murphy. two of them. There's a blue one and a pink one. Yeah, but they couldn't duplicate it. Ah, with the shaping machine, you can duplicate it. Yeah. But the glasses can change it by exactly. the edge. But still, you're getting closer. the shape, you're getting closer. Yeah. Where sometimes it was hit or miss. And when you were trying to dupe boards, I ran into this myself. Yeah. I'd try and dupe myself a board. One time, Flame wanted to take some pictures one time. So I made this beautiful rocket fish. I spent time with the airbrush. It took me days airbrushing this thing. <laughs> oh, it was the most gorgeous thing. We'd go on the photo shoot and stuff. I just finished the board. And it was the worst dog board <laughs> I've ever made. Like I was, and, and I was just going. And then I make a clear board. And it's one of the best boards I've ever made. I didn't put their time into the airbrushing or anything else, color work. I just glassed it. That was one of the best boards I ever made for myself. And it's clear. Yeah. <laughs> That's just funny how it goes. I've always thought that Rennie was actually kind of a progressive board builder. Like, it seemed like Rennie was open-minded enough to, to go, hey, maybe epoxy, maybe overseas. Maybe, like, is, I, I, is that I, your I, feeling? I introduced, I introduced Rennie to the epoxies before he went to surf tech. Uh, we were making. He was making. He was making epoxy boards. I love Rennie. He's he's truly quiet, kind. He's he's a great guy. Just like some of the artists that I have hanging in here, the surfing artists, my friend Matt Olowski, my good surfing buddy. They're they're wonderful people, right? Yeah. And Rennie is just he's salt he's of the earth. Salt of the earth. Yeah. He's he's truly. He's not. He's humble. You would think this guy should have the ego the size of some of these shapers that you do see, who I'm not going to mention names. Yeah. He's just the mellowest cat in the face of the planet. I love the guy dearly. Yeah, yeah. We all I was do. proud to glass his boards for him. Yeah, cool. What about um, last time, that, if, if I was to order a board from Clyde Beatty, would, would you hand shape it or would this board come off of a machine? Like, where are you at now with that? I have for the – when Sacred Craft <laughs> – inducted me to the, the whatever the, the the shaping hall of fame for la um i made two copies of that board one was raffled off got some good bucks as a matter of fact yeah. for the for the benefit um for the auction and uh that was hand shaped because it was in the mode of the time it was supposed to be make the board so i hand shaped both of those boards and i've got one matching brother to it yeah. right here yeah and uh those were the last boards I handshaped because I took my own program, yeah. put it on the machine. Yeah. That way I know that board is going to be, at least on the shaping end, duplicated to those specs. Okay? Forget that the glassers can change well, things. I'd like a to bit. talk about that in a minute, though. Glassing or, is important. Or now. Glasses. What is it that, like, if, if you go, uh, let me just push the button and pop out the magic board that I've made me, uh, myself a million times, why does it sometimes then come out not so great? It depends on weight and sanders. I remember back in the old days with the craftsman, the shaper would pull the sander into his shaping room and go, look at what I'm doing. Because if you run that edge on the bottom just a little bit too far or a little bit too less, it changes how the board rides. Yeah. The weight 
you put a little bit too much resin on a board. Mm -hmm. Oh, you've just changed it again. And that's the thing. Glassers, shapers always got the credit. That's the glory guys, okay? Hey, like Greg Lohr and I used to talk about, if some of these shapers knew how the glasses could change their board, it would crush their world. It would crush their egos. Okay. It's important. It's all important. That's why I never wanted. one that's the most important. I mean, well, obviously shaping, shaping shaping obviously is the glory end. Right. But you got to back it up. That's why shapers would pull sanders in to go, make sure when you sand this board, here's where my edges end. I want them to end here. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. You will dupe my shape. You will not try and alter it. Right. Okay? And that's why glassing is important. The unsung heroes of board building. Hey, you could have five billion shapers. If you don't have any glassers, you're in big trouble. I was thinking about doing, um, a paying sort of an homage to the glassers I of the world. Well worth it. Yeah. Well worth it. And, and do you remember there was, um, I think it was George Orbelin, Orbelian, excuse me, who made this shaping tree, you know, and it all like sort of started with, you know, wherever it started, you know, with Simmons and Velzy mm-hmm. and whoever. And it, and everyone sort of found their place in that tree. And I'm sure that you had, uh, Mike Perry, you know, you I were attached came to Mike. off of Mike Perry's yeah. thing. But what was funny was some of the people on that, Got moved way ahead of their timeline, and I, I never squawk about. Well, it, it wasn't. It was an organic piece. I mean, George will tell you he's just trying his best, and he. Right, and sure. A lot of times he was shooting in the dark on some of that stuff, and it needed. It still to this day needs to be changed. Uh, Xanadu, I interviewed Xanadu, and he's like, "I need to be moved." You know, I'm like, "I'm not in charge of that." <laughs> I, I saw a book on the surfboard history, mm-hmm. and it had a little blurb in it about John Bradbury came up with the epoxy resin. I didn't squawk about it. John was my good friend. I introduced him to the resin. But in history's terms, in Australia, he's known for doing going to the epoxy. But it was just a small thing. Very, very small. But still, that's how history... Was Napoleon actually a bad guy? Oh, could he possibly have been a good guy? Oh, his history, written history dictates it. Well, you know, it's fascinating about history. I heard somebody say the other day, in... In 500 years, mm-hmm. or maybe a thousand years, if you ask a Jewish person, um, you know, was the Holocaust good? They might say, you know what? Without it, we wouldn't have gotten Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, today, right now, you're going to get hell. It was horrible. I can't believe that Hitler did that to those millions of people. But so you're right about history, you know. And over oh. time, obviously, our you, you we're skewed. Our perspective is I mean, skewed. Depending what people's motives are that direct it. Um, you know, it's like, uh, it's their version of history. Is it the real history? Ah, so maybe you can dig through it and find the real history. Yeah. That's why it's so nice about the, the articles when people say, oh, no, so-and-so came up with the epoxy. I, I say, hey, go check Surfer Magazine. Yeah. Right. Talk to me later. Right, you exactly. Know? Because it's, luckily I had those in there. Yeah. Otherwise, that would have been just buried by the wayside. Yeah. You know? But so if I came to you and I said, I said, Clyde, help me out with, I need, I need a, sh- a glasser's tree, a laminator's tree, like we have a shaper's tree. And you would be able to kind of guide me along and point me over to Rennie, Rennie. I mean, I would obviously start with somebody older than you and get some of this tree. Yeah. I think this would be a fun thing to do. It, at first, when boards were all wood, right, um, there was nothing else. Was Bob Simmons maybe the first laminator. Yeah. And back then, they just sealed the wood. 
they didn't glass. And well, then Bob glassing, Sports had fiberglass on it. Glassing came into it. Right. I mean, hell, you go look at the ancient Hawaiian boards, they're just pieces of wood. Yeah. Okay. No fins, nothing, just yeah. big old, you know, planks, yeah. you know. But that's that's the evolution. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, it started with this, and then it moved. And just like Rennie told me at one point in time, he said, you know, there was epoxy resin before there was polyester. Polyester, because of surfboards, then it came into vogue and everybody wanted to use it because it was quicker. It wasn't, you know, and I, I asked her. And the yes, boat industry was pushing it. The boat industry was pushing polyester resin, which is like. Which is, was a cheaper alternative to the higher tech. But then when epoxies came in, what are the, what are all of the around the world race boats? SP Systems, who I started with in the epoxy, got bought by some trans world um, racing um, super rich guy. Yeah. He bought the company so he could make his high tech sailboat round the world racers. Right? right? Yeah. He bought the freaking company because <laughs> he had the money yeah. and he wanted to control his own technology on right. the, on the boats. Fascinating it's stuff. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's amazing. Where, do, where do you see surfboards in twenty five years, thirty years, fifty years? What do you think a surfboard will look like as far as construction and? Oh, that's too even far in advance. Even it's that's shape. too far in advance because we're constantly getting changes every day yeah. to materials, which then increase the function of the board. Right. And, you know, there's going to be changes. The one consistent thing about life is change. Mm. Okay. And ev- evolution. Uh, it's, what is it going to be? Jeez, like, you know, I look at these guys in surfing and contests now doing these aerials. And I mean, just it's, it's, Nobody would have thought this. I know. Nobody. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought this stuff. Yeah. Like, in, I look at sailboarding, because we were right there when that thing was starting. And I look at some of these guys, because it was an expensive man's sport, and it just yeah. dropped off the face of the planet. But there's still pockets out there. Yeah, in Europe. Yeah. And I look at these guys, and I go, we only dreamed about doing something like that. So if these guys are doing this now, somebody used to tell me, Oh, and Kelly Slater, you saw all of the, the breaks when he was doing all of this aerial stuff. And, you know, yeah, but how many pieces were on the cutting room floor? Well, the, the next generation didn't know about the cutting room floor. Yeah. And they're consistently pulling this stuff off. It's frightening. It's yeah. frightening. You think we'll get to a place where we have a board that's a little bit more earth friendly? Like, obviously, we're making boards out of plastics and stuff. I, I don't know if you have a thought on that. There is. Has been polyester, a a- polyester resin is a toxic waste. You can't throw that legally into a landfill. People do. Epoxy, I mean, you eat off of styrofoam cups and drink out of styrofoam plastic. Yeah. And they can recycle this stuff. No, it's not good to make more. But there's going to be changes. Everything is pointing that way. I mean, we should be off of fossil fuels right now. There is no reason we should be on them, except that big, big, big business controls the whole thing. Yeah, and uh, we have other molten. The power companies have bought these people up with different sources of power. Yeah, like car car designs. Yeah. right. And people got bought out. A friend of mine's father got bought out. He had a design for no fossil yeah. fuel car. Car companies bought him out and then buried it. Yeah, and he made his money off of that sale, though. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so we don't everything's got to become more 
uh, green oriented. Everything, yeah. Yeah. everything we do. Otherwise, we're going to kill ourselves off. Yeah. And we're in the process of doing that right now. Yeah. And when it, it makes me sick to hear people talk about like presidents we won't mention right now. Yeah. He, you know, we're going back to fossil fuel, you know. No, this is wrong. They want to open up the Santa Barbara Channel here again for more drilling. No, no, no. Like, like the locals are saying, 50 years of advancement, and we're about to have it shot down. We have to go to clean, clean, yeah. or we're literally, it won't be us, the kids, and their kid, they're going to be, they're going to, yeah. will they still be alive? And, and when they say there's no global warming, this is where I was going with that. Take a look around. Give me a break. Yeah. Water levels rising worldwide, and they're envisioning this is going to be underwater by this point. There's going to be no more ice pack, right? Yeah. Come on, give me a break. No more global warming. Give yeah. me a break. Yeah. If we don't go green, we will be dead. Yeah. Simple as that. The ants will inherit the earth. Ants and cockroaches will inherit the earth. <laughs> Well, Clyde, that's quite a way to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go take a look uh, and see what you got, and uh, see what you got laying around. You got it. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Judging on the judge of all that is a word.
It was a wipeout, as Laird Hamilton has suggested. And two, is that even a wave? It's more like an open ocean swell. It seems that they're riding swells rather than waves that are breaking top to bottom with a lip and a trough and a wave face, so to say. It's more like these are swell mountains that they're riding. But again, makes for great, uh, great debate and great uh, social media discourse. And I'm sure that will continue. And I will put the Surfline link to the Q&A with Maya and Carlos up on the downthelineradio.com page, as well as the Skin Dog Collins video, sort of uh, his rebuttal to Laird Hamilton on CNN. The third story is sadly Buttons Kaluio Kalani passed away earlier this week, and the internet and social media have lit up with the sadness and the heartfelt tributes. And the Encyclopedia of Surfing did a really cool tribute video that I'll post up on the site or put a link to. You should check that out. It Everything has been said um, about Buttons, so I'm not going to um, bore you with my thoughts on it other than, you know what, aloha to Buttons. Uh, thank you, Buttons, and uh, rest in peace. Now, there is a paddle out this Saturday, November 9th. That's in two days at Malibu's Surfrider Beach. That goes from 1130 to 3 p.m. Button's wife will be there. And um, if you're in that L.A. neighborhood, you might want to go and do the paddle out. I think it'll be a really grand affair. Also, nine-year-old Delaney Cooper Cupper is raising money for the children of Buttons Kaluio Kalani via a surf marathon type event. This nine-year-old surfer is going to catch as many waves as she can and um, hopefully raise some money in the process. And I'll put the link to that great cause by a great kid helping other children on the downthelineradio.com website. And I would urge you to, um, if you have some money, give to Delaney's cause for Buttons Children. I gave $100. And I would urge you to give some money if you can't. The fourth story is um, I'll be producing the Boardroom Surfboard Show in Del Mar on May 17th and 18th of 2014. And we will be honoring an icon of foam, a great surfer, a great Hawaiian, a great shaper, the legend Mr. Ben Ipa. And uh, we are ecstatic to be able to honor Ben Ipa. This guy has um, quite a legacy, quite a history, a very, very uh, established character and a great, great human. So we're looking forward to that. And um, you know what? I'm going to, um, we're going to go into a phone call here with Marty Thomas, who is the contest director for the Vans Triple Crown of Surfing. So I've got an interview all lined up with Marty. We're going to give him a call here in a minute, and we're going to talk with Marty about all three events uh, in the Vans Triple Crown of Surfing, and all of that, of course, culminating in the very exciting Billabong Pipeline Masters, which is going to be the final crescendo of the 2013 ASP World Tour season, and I know all World Tour fans are excited about that, and I'm hoping that you're one of those fans. So, uh, before we get to Marty, and I'll call him in just a second, I do want to tell you that you can reach me, surftalksandiego at gmail.com, or uh, we have a Facebook account, 
Down the Line Radio on Facebook. And um, my Instagram account is at Boardroom Surf. At Boardroom Surf is my Instagram and my Twitter. So, yeah, let's um, go ahead and get into it with Marty Thomas. Marty, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well, man. Cool. You got a minute to chat? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool. Well, um, let me just say that um, for the listeners out there, I'm chatting with Marty Thomas. Uh, Marty used to be um, the one of my old co-hosts here on Downline Surf Talk. And Marty, now I think your official title is what? Marketing Director of Vans Triple Crown of Surfing? Or? No, I'm the, I'm the contest director, Bass. Right. So, unfortunately, I'm the guy that has to make the call each day. That's one of the most <laughs> nerve-wracking things to do. <laughs> wow, that sounds brutal. Yeah, um, it can be at times. Sometimes it's an easy call. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a little tough when you get some marginal conditions and, and not a very favorable uh, forecast. But here in Hawaii, we usually have pretty consistent surf uh, during the 12-day waiting period. So, it, it can be challenging at times. Now, you're not making the call on the HIC event, are you? Yes, I am. I'm also the, the contest director for that event as well. Well, t- fill me in. Um, what's going on there? I know that today there's some north northeast sort of like short period swell. Um, what's the latest on that event finishing up? Well, that's exactly what we have. Um, it's like five to seven feet. It's really broken up. It's really close together. It's not quite on the point, but it's not quite big enough for that inside wall at sunset to turn on from the north direction like it does when it's about six to eight feet. So it's just a few feet uh, shy of being. You know, contestable. Um, we've got one day remaining uh, of competition, and we've got till Sunday to finish it up. So we still have three days in the window, and there, we're looking at a, a storm system out towards the North Pacific uh, from the more northwest direction that hopefully will start showing on the reef uh, tomorrow afternoon, and it's looking to peak on Saturday. So we're anticipating a 68-foot surf better direction, still some kind of funky winds, um, and it will be crossed up with this northeast, but it should be uh, considerably bigger for Saturday, so we're hoping to finish up the HIC Pearl on Saturday. Well, good. Um, that's a good update, and I, I watched a little bit of the event, Marty, and uh, early on, at least, um, I don't know, I want to say like round of 96, um, but guys, I got it, my gut feeling was that they just didn't look very comfortable out at sunset. There's a guy's seem to be riding too small of boards, and um, I don't know. What, what's your take on the level of competition early on? Well, the early stages, um, it definitely didn't have the you know, quality you're going to see in the round of 64. Um, but that's what's unique about this HIC Pro is that, you know, it's only a four-star, so we don't get a lot of the, the big seeds in this event, but it's such a crucial, important event for our local guys. Um, I think the last surfer to get in was rated, like, number you know, 500 or something, so... Hey, with, with, you and I could probably have qualified for that event uh, <laughs> in a couple, <laughs> a couple oh, of events throughout the course of the year. But with that said, it's, it's still such an important event. Um, and the conditions, you know, we had some, you know, four to six foot, seven foot range, which is a difficult size out at sunset. Your instincts tell you to ride a smaller board because it is smaller. But in reality, out at sunset, there's so much water moving around. If the guys took out a little bit of longer board that uh, are, are getting a nod, um, you can catch the waves. You can cover more range. It's, you know, it's one of the largest lineups that we have on tour, so it's very challenging to surf Sunset Beach. Yeah, I saw some old guys out there. I saw Liam in a heat, Liam McNamara, and he's got to be a grandfather by now. 
Oh, well, not quite. <laughs> Unless you, you, nothing doesn't know about it. Your kids are still in, the, in their teens. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, this event does give that opportunity. All the young guys, Ken Hendricks has been serving really well. Ian Wallace has been a standout. But, you know, those older guys still can hold their own out at Sunset, and that's what makes Hawaii so unique. Um, it takes years and years of experience to master all the ways over here, whether it's Holly, uh, Sunset, or Pipeline. And some of the old guys, man, they have the experience, they know the lineup, they know which way to go for it. What does the HIC event mean for the Triple Crown? How many guys qualify and get to surf in the three events out of this HIC event? Well, it's a very important event for our region. Um, it decides the regional champion. And unfortunately, right now, we only have two regional events. It's the Volcom Pipe Pro in January, February, and then the HIC in October, November. But those two events are held at two you know, two most uh, crucial ways on the North Shore, Pipe and Sunset. So it's an opportunity for our local surfers to crack the, the Triple Crown. And what we do after the HIC is we take the top nine regional surfers um, you know, off the ratings, and in order to do that, you got to, you know, uh, pick the top nine guys, but overlap the guys that are, that are already in, so if you make the top 30, top 40 on the region, you got a shot into the Triple Crown, so it's very important for our regional surfers. Now, why don't we have an event for the local guys in the summertime in town somewhere? I know we used to do that. Is What's going on with that? It's tough. You know, I've talked to all my uh, marketing buddies on the mainland there at all the companies, and I've been trying to, to get an event going. Uh, I think Alamoana Bowls would be a great venue. Um, the problem is it, it's just the economic climate right now. Um, it's not doesn't make sense to do a one- or two-star because um, you don't get any marketing value out of it. The, the only events that, that companies are really doing are the bigger events in which they um, have more prize money, have more production, and, and then they can do a webcast because that's where you reach your audience is through the webcast. So, um, it, to, to do an event like that, you're talking, you know, 150 to 300 thousand dollars minimum to do a four star, yeah. and then plus you get the cost of the webcast. So, it's a pretty big ticket item. Events don't make money; they cost money. So, yeah. that's the challenge that we have right now getting a new event here in Hawaii. Huh. Well, uh, let's move into the Triple Crown, the Vance Triple Crown of Surfing. Um, Haleiwa is the first event, the Reef Haleiwa Pro. I think I got that right. I don't know if that's the official name of it. but um, it's, it's called the Reef Hawaiian Pro. Reef Hawaiian Pro. It's at Haleiwa Beach Park. And when does that start, Marty? That, the waiting period starts November 12th, runs to the 23rd, 12-day window. Um, we've got a great lineup. There's going to be 128 surfers in that event, including about 35 uh, surfers from Hawaii. We have 27 of the top 34 entered in the event, so we're really excited about that. Last year, we had only about 16. Um, so we got a great lineup. Obviously, uh, Nick Fanning uh, is serving all three this year. We have Pete Dervish, we've got Claudia and Joe, we've got um, John John Florence, of course, Josh Kerr. Um, so there's a great lineup uh, for the Tachi and Dusty Payne. And uh, we're looking for, hopefully, to kick off Tuesday, Wednesday. Unfortunately, the trend right now is to uh, surf out of the northeast direction, which and if it's a solid northeast swell, it, Long UK it could be about eight foot, and Hollywood is like two feet. So for Hollywood, we need to swell out of the west northwest direction. Yeah, I was looking at stormsurf.com, and there seems to be a massive north swell headed your way. I want to say about this time next week. Um, but yeah, that's too bad for Hollywood. But um, tell me, it's interesting. Why do you think there's so many guys out of the 34 doing uh, the Triple Crown, or at least the 
the Reef Hawaiian Pro, 27 of 34. Is it because they're, they're worried about requalifying? There's a lot of guys on the bubble, perhaps. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of guys rated, you know, around 20 to 34 that need a result to solidify their position on tour. And uh, I, I just think that, the, you know, everyone wants to win a triple crown. I mean, uh, there's something to be said about uh, coming here and uh, making a name for yourself in Hawaii and proving yourself. Um, you know, it's one thing to qualify for the QS and the rest of the part of the world, but you know, you gotta, we got the last two primes now. There's only nine primes on tour. So these last two primes, Reef One Pro and the Vansville Cup of Surfing, are so vital for those guys that are on the bubble. And uh, you got quite a few of those guys. So uh, you know, Fred Epitachi is right there, Matty Wilkinson, Travis Lowe, Brett Sisson, Pete Dervish. I mean, those guys are like right on the bubble. They need a big result. Not to mention, uh, you know, there's a pretty good size uh, prize purse winning the Triple Crown and all the prestige that goes with it. Well, that's that's really true. And, and I'll tell you, I think Sebastian Zietz did a lot to kind of psych people up to to uh, win the pre- the prestigious triple crown of surfing you know it, his win really kind of s- like it really sort of um you know it was like a homecoming sort of for him and for hawaiians and i think he, on some level he sort of lifted it up a little bit well that's right i mean he came out uh sort of for you know in the shadows you know he wasn't really on the verge of qualifying he was kind of like in that 40 position and you know, it takes a big result at this stage on the tour to move some spots, but it just goes to show you that it can be done. A guy like that from around a 96, around a 128, got like Connor Coffin's a classic example. He just got second at a prime, um, and now he finds himself 36 on the ratings. He's got two more primes with Hollywood Sunset. A big result there to find him come out of the shadows and qualify for the World Tour. So, you know, it's exciting. Uh, the last two primes of the year really shakes things up, and uh, it's going to set, you know, the, the top 44 for next year. Yeah, it is exciting. We're we're excited about it. I, I'm super psyched on the Triple Crown this year. Um, the Clash of the Titans, this event that Reef puts on in conjunction with the Reef Hawaiian Pro, sort of taking on a life of its own. Um, <laughs> Especially with social media. <laughs> I want to know when your heat is. <laughs> But look, Gerlach, Gerlach's done a lot to, to kind of, you know, get the votes going, and he's in the event. And quite frankly, Brad looks in form. I'm sure the other guys are as well. Uh, what's your take on the Clash of the Titans? Yeah, the, the Clash of the Legends is a, a great idea that we've came up with. Um, we're excited to have it again this year. It's, it's actually one of the most exciting heats of the day. You know, Sonny Garcia always uh, a threat out in the lineup and always, uh, you know, has some presence there. And, uh, great to see Mike Ho uh, get in there as well. Um, you know, legendary North Shore surfer, um, won the first Triple Crown back in 82. And uh, Kaibo Akias, another, you know, on-form surfer in his early 40s. And then you got Brad Gerlach, which is, you know, his personality. He's charismatic. He's got attitude. He's got style. And uh, he's not scared to tell you. And uh, so it should be a lot of fun. And, and what we do with that, with the Clash of the Legends, we like to try to do three heats if possible, and time will permit. And we do want to try to get uh, some of the biggest surf that we have during the waiting period. So what we do is we just pick one of the best days, and uh, we'll stop the event you know, mid-round if we have to and send them out there for about a 45-minute heat. And um, it should be very exciting for the people on the beach as well as for our viewers worldwide. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Let, let's move on, Marty, to Sunset Beach. Um, uh, what's the official name of that event? That's the Vans World Cup of Surfing. All right.
but the Vans World Cup, of course, the World Cup, synonymous with Sunset Beach. Um, you know, Marty, you and I have talked about this many times. Just a large playing field. Sunset Beach is sort of the wild card. I mean, if the wave itself presents so many challenges. Um, and we're sort of seeing that right now as we watch the HIC Pro. Um, Sunset Beach, Marty, you're an expert out there. Tell me, give me a little rundown. Give the listeners a rundown of Sunset Beach as a competitive arena. Well, it's an amazing fact is that Kelly Slater has never won at Sunset Beach. And, you know, he's won virtually every other event on the tour over the course of the last 20 years. He has not fared very well at Sunset. And with that said, I mean, he's dedicated his life to getting to know Pipeline and he's got seven, you know, Pipe Masters. But it just goes to show you how difficult Sunset is. Um, we're excited about this year's uh, Vansville Cup of Surfing. we got Mick Fanning, Kelly Slater, Taj Boyle, Julian Wilson. A lot of the top, we got 29 of the top 44, or top uh, 34 in Sunset. So definitely it's a warm-up for Pipe. It's a chance for guys that aren't surfing uh, Holly but to get their juices flowing before um, Pipeline. And Sunset, you, know, you got to be prepared for anything. It could be 2 to 3 on the point. It could be 12 to 15, you know, West Peak out the back. So, um you know, it's interesting. Uh, the trend has been over the last 15 years, all the focus has been at Pipe. But Sunset is the premier high-performance big wave spot in the world bar down. And when John John won it a couple years ago, it was unbelievable. He went out there and just tore the wave apart. And it looked like he was surfing four to six foot Pupakea. So uh, I'm excited about the Vans World Cup of Surfing. It's the last prime of the year. And it essentially will decide, uh, you know, the top ten qualifiers uh, other than a couple of the uh, CT guys that will be on the bubble going into pipe. You know, Marty, when I think of Sunset, and um, I know we all sort of think of that inside ball as the scoring region, I would love it if the judges put as much weight on the big drop at big West Peak Sunset. I hearken back to, you know, seeing Kong sort of rolling down the windows and doing the hand jive. And um, I just remember the big drops, and I'd like to know what your take is on the concept of, the big outside West Peak drop um, scoring as much and being as crucial to somebody's score as it is to everybody just sort of sitting on the inside bowl and trying to score that barrel. Well, you know what? I think it, I think it plays a huge part. When C.J. Hobgood won a few years back, it was because of one of those waves that you described. It was an eight-foot West Peak. He got a huge drop. He sort of faded back, cranked his bottom turn, nice mid-face turn, rode to the inside bowl and kept himself in, in the critical part of the wave. And he like over a nine for that wave. So the judges do take that into account. They, they're they not looking for aerials or closeout re-entries or, you know, uh, those types of maneuvers. They're looking for completed rides, sets from out the back uh, with style, positioning on the wave at sunset is so important. If you're out in front of the pocket, you're not going to get scored. If you're in a critical section of the wave from, from outside all the way through that inside bowl barreling section, you're going to get nines, you know, eights and nines on every wave. So, I, I think the scale definitely suits uh, that type of surfing out at sunset. Well, I hope so. I'm going to cringe if I see guys sitting on the inside and you see these rollers outside and they're just, you know, that's going to make me a little bit upset. Let's move to probably, Marty, what I'm claiming is um, the most anticipated Pipeline Masters event ever. Um, it seems like the Kelly and Mick showdown is um, on everybody's tongue. Um, it's going to be a big event. Am I? Um, Am I, is it a stretch, Marty, to suggest that this is the most anticipated Pipeline Masters event ever? Well, I, I think it is. You got two guys in the race for 
the title, and it's clear what needs to happen. Kelly Slater has to win it, otherwise Mick is champion, and if Kelly does win it, Mick needs to get third or better. So, and they're on either side of the draw. They're coming into the event uh, seated one and two. So, it, every round is going to be exciting. If Kelly gets through, he's still alive. Um, you know, if, if they both get through, it's on. And, it, you know, ideally, you see both of these guys work their way through the round into the semifinals and you know, Kelly would have to win it, and Mick would, you know, would would, would win it if he got in the semi. So it, it's going to be really exciting. Um, everyone's going to be on the edge of their seat, you know, for each round. And uh, we're very excited, obviously, for the Vans Triple Crown Surfing. I'm sure Billabong's ecstatic as well that it's coming down to Hawaii. It just seems like it should every year because uh, this is where it all happens. This is the ultimate proving ground. It's, it's our biggest stage in sport, the North Shore of Oahu. So uh, we're just excited. Uh, very excited, and it's going to be uh, hopefully a great finish, and hopefully we get some strong, big west swells. Well, yeah, it's my hope that all those things occur. And, and, you know, you mentioned something that you've heard me sort of rant on ad nauseum for a while, and that's, um, you know, we do have this great showdown at Pipeline this year, and we do have two great champions in Kelly and Mick. And, of course, with social media and the Internet and yada, 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 that anticipation, it, it seems to be, mounting and growing to sort of a fever pitch. But what Marty, what I wanted to touch on is this weighted system that you've heard me talk about. NASCAR and um, our beloved PGA Tour, they both have a system where um, no matter what, it comes down to the final event. And quite frankly, the Pipeline Masters is our Super Bowl. And it's great that it's working out this year and years past it hasn't. With the new ASP, um, certainly changes could happen. And why don't you give our listeners your take on my thoughts about having a weighted system so that no matter what, it comes down to pipeline each and every year. I like the idea, obviously, for selfish reasons, because I'm the conduct director for the Triple Crown and the Five Masters, but I think you raise a really good point. I'm nothing against uh, the other events on tour, but the, you know, to have the, uh, the world title decided before pipeline, it's a little anticlimactic. I, I really like how the PGA... Uh, does it? If anyone in the top five wins uh, the set, you know the, the the final event, they are the champion. If no one wins in the top five, then it goes back to points. I think that's uh, one scenario to look at, and and maybe we'll present that to uh, the ASP in, in time. I know it's been a discussion in the past, um, but uh, I like the idea. I think uh, I think it's very successful for the PGA. You know, uh, you mentioned John John Florence a minute ago. He said something pretty interesting the other day on uh, some video somewhere. Uh, and it was basically that he'd like to see the ASP Tour have an off season so that, you know, maybe uh, we have six months on and then six months off. What are your thoughts on something like that? Um, I think that's something to, uh, to consider. I, I personally like that it kicks off in March. I think too much downtime will just sort of put people to sleep and they won't be engaged in the sport. Um, I like I like the fact that you got you know the Australian leg you got you got snapper you got bells which is a great start and then you know you can skip around a little bit and then you have a strong summer European you, know, you got the, the trestles you got Europe um, I I do think that it gets a little um, crazy for these guys at the end of the circuit so it's kind of like you have events sort of spotty in the first six months and then they're all sort of crammed at the end. Like, uh, you know, from Chopu to uh, December, these guys don't have much time off at all. So 
Um, I, I think there's ways to maybe uh, keep the schedule on a calendar year, but perhaps ease it up so it's not so uh, crammed at the end. Marty, one of the interesting stories is uh, the Jamie O'Brien, Ricardo Dos Santos sort of fiasco, I guess I'll characterize it as. Uh, Jamie and Ricardo got in a little scuffle at the Chopu trials earlier this year. And the ASP's fine, both of them, and neither of them are allowed to surf in the Triple Crown, from what I understand. Do you think that this was too harsh of a penalty by the ASP? Well, it's hard to say. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the moment. I didn't see it go down personally. Um, I know things like this have happened in the past. I, I, I think it's a, a little bit harsh. Um, you know, it wasn't the trials. You could, or you could argue that. It wasn't actually in the event window. Um, but, you know, it did get some negative publicity. And, um, you know, this isn't sort of Jamie's first offense. You know, he you know, publicly burnt the uh, ASP rulebook a few years back. So <laughs> perhaps it was uh, a little extra slap on the wrist because of things he's done in the past as well. I don't know if that's the case. It did, it, I, I was surprised by the news. You know, I thought it had sort of died down and, and it was done. And uh, so to see the story sort of resurface and the fine and the suspension um, laid out, you know, that long after the event, I was a little bit surprised by it. It, it is a shame, Jamie O'Brien's, you know, one of the most flamboyant characters and definitely a, a standout out of Pipeline, former uh, Pipe Master. So um, it's, a, it's a blow to our region for sure. You know, uh, he did qualify for the Pipe Masters through the Volcom event. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, it's going to go to the next guy in line. So, uh, yeah, it's too bad. But, um, you know, it is what it is. The ASP uh, governing body of the sport, and they've got rules in place. And, and if you break them, you got to uh, pay the, you know, pay the consequences. Well, from a fan's perspective, it's it's definitely a bummer that Jamie's not in the event. I I know I, there's one there's a couple guys that seem to put a wrinkle in Kelly at Pipe and and their buddies, and one of them's Jamie, and the other one's Kalani Chapman. And um, I just get the sense that those two guys sort of ruffled ruffle Kelly's feathers a little bit out there. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and John John, you know, if he comes up against Kelly, that would be one of the most uh, incredible heats. You know, he got the better of him uh, two years ago in the quarterfinals. Uh, and so, you know, Kelly can certainly hold his own out there, but there's definitely a couple guys that he knows and is aware of that can hold their own out of pipe. And that, you know, changes things. You know, Kelly's got so much confidence out there, he knows the break so well. But, you know, Andy Irons ruffled his feather back in the day. Bruce Irons is another guy. Um, who's in the Pipe Masters via the Volcom, uh, John John, and uh, and, and Connie Chapman, which will most likely be a uh, band's wild card. So, you know, we do have our local trialists coming through that can uh, wreak some havoc as well. Uh, Kehoe Hart uh, has qualified and, and wow. he holds his own pipeline too. That's interesting. And that's he's an older guy, isn't he? Kehoe has been around a long time. That's right. Um, tell me about... Real quick, and then I'll let you go, Marty. The webcast announcing teams for the three events. Is it a unified team, or is this the last year where Reef gets their guys and Vans gets their guys and Billabong gets theirs guys? What do you know about what the ASP is doing uh, for webcast announcing teams? Well, I don't know what their, what their plans are for next year, but this year it's status quo. we got David Stanfield. we got Joe Chappell in there. Uh, we got Ross Williams for the first two. Uh, it's been a great addition. we got Todd Klein. Uh, Shea Lopez, I think, will be here for Sunset as well. Um, Reef will have, uh, will have their guys, their team riders, uh, jumping as well. 
And then, of course, we'll, once we get to the Billabong Pipe Masters, you'll have guys like Mike Parsons, you'll have Luke Egan, you'll have uh, uh, their crew. So uh, it's status quo, uh, but things will most likely change for next year once, uh, you know, the new management team's OC of the ASP uh, takes on the tour. And from what I hear, they're talking to a lot of the, you know, same usual suspects. And uh, my thoughts are, I don't think they'll have one team for all 10, 11, or 12 World Tour events. I think they'll have like a, you know, a couple different squads that they, they move and, and, and place at the various events around the world. Because it'd be really tough to do uh, all of them. Yeah. All right. Well, look, Marty, thanks, buddy, for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope your golf game's going well. And uh, yeah, man, thanks. I, I, I appreciate chatting with you. It's good stuff. Right on, Bass. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, let's uh, catch up. Uh, maybe I can do a couple call-ins during the Triple Crown as we get closer to uh, the, uh, the final event. Sounds good, Marty. I'll chat with you soon, bud. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so uh, cool talk there with Marty, and um, he is the contest director for all three events, Advanced Triple Crown of Surfing, coming up here starting real soon in November, um, couple, just a week away or so, so um, good stuff, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, surftalksandiego at gmail.com, that's my email address, you can shoot me an email if you got any questions, and um, all good, thanks for listening, until next time, uh, adios and aloha.